You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biesa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy, and good morning to our listeners. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Pretty good, thanks. Doing very well today. Excellent. Take two is better than take one, right? So far. <laughs> so far. Thank goodness for recordings. At, le- at least so far, it's only taken us two, two, yeah. two takes. So. I may never want to go back in the studio. This is a lot more relaxing now. It wasn't at first, but now it's relaxing. I know if I really make a big faux pas, I just hit the stop button. <laughs> well, this, is, this is so much fun, but uh, I'm sure our listeners didn't. Um, They're not want, interested want in our faux pas, I guess. Listen, <laughs> listen to us do all these takes. So yeah, exactly. what do we have on today's show today? We have a great book on today's show, and we have the author of the book, even better. Um, and today's show is taped. So no opportunity to talk to Mr. James Nestor, but he's a fascinating man and a great speaker. Um, But do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC in all three locations. And do feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca if you have any questions for us, concerns, or any show suggestions. And please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all the uh, podcast platforms. And as you know, you can find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca. And on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. So I picked up a book and it's called Breath, and it's by James Nestor. The full title is Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. I found it fascinating, compelling, extremely well written. You would think that this topic matter might be dry, but it was not. Um, so I want to read to you. Um, a couple of reviews and what the book is about. And um, I really encourage you, especially after you listen to James, um, I think you're really going to want to dive into this book. I just found it fascinating. I kept, I kept saying, Oh my gosh, I never knew it really very, very interesting. One of those books you couldn't put down, right? Really? It really is. Um, and uh, again, it's, it's, it's just, I, I, was, I was reading it up north and uh, I was sitting there and I was saying to my son, Shane, did you know, did you know? He's like, okay, I'll read the book. Um, but it, I really, I just, I absolutely loved it. And I thought we have to get him on the show to talk about, um, to talk about everything surrounding the book. But let me read you um, about the book. So no matter what you eat, how active or how health conscious you are, none of it matters if you're not breathing properly. Our most essential function has been overlooked by science, undervalued by doctors, and neglected by everyone else. Luckily, as James Nestor reveals in his new book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, 
Cutting-edge science is revolutionizing our understanding of this missing pillar of health. As an author and journalist for Outside, Scientific America, The Atlantic, and more, covering science and extreme sports, Nestor was driven to answer seemingly simple questions he couldn't find in any medical textbooks. He wanted to understand why he and 90% of the modern population has crooked teeth. Why are humans the only species on the planet that snores and suffers from a myriad of respiratory maladies like asthma and allergies? Why are these problems increasing every year? The answer is in how we breathe. Not since Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma has a book been so smart, so well-researched, so compelling in explaining the science of something right in front of us, yet so misunderstood and overlooked in modern health. Your bad teeth, your blood pressure, your weight, your sleep, and your immune system are all comprised because of how we breathe, compromised, so excuse me, because of how we breathe. Nestor, the brilliant mind hailed by the Wall Street Journal for his fascinating, informative, and exhilarating writing, set out on a decade-long quest to find out where our breathing went wrong, and how to fix it. And just a couple of reviews from people. He has several. It's a rare popular science book that keeps a reader up to date, eyes glued to the pages. But breath is just fascinating. It will alarm you, it will gross you out, and it will inspire you. Who knew respiration could be so scintillating? And that's by Spirituality and Health. And a second one, Although We Breathe, there is an art and a science to breathing correctly. Full of fascinating information and compelling arguments, this eye-opening, or more aptly, mouth-closing and nostril-opening work is highly recommended, and that's from the Library Journal. And James Nestor has written for Outside Scientific America, The Atlantic, Dwell, The New York Times, and many other publications. His book, Deep Free Diving, Renegade Science, and What the Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves was a finalist for the 2015 Penn ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing and Amazon Best Science Book of 2014 and more. Nestor has appeared on dozens of national television shows, including ABC's Nightline and CBS's Morning News and on NPR. He lives and breathes in San Francisco. Honestly, this is a fascinating book. I, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, we'll be talking about many things, but a few of the learning points will be how we have evolved to breathe wrong, how is our health connected to our breath, and how can we learn to breathe correctly. So please do stay with us. We will be back in a few minutes to talk to Mr. James Nestor. Set go, it's another wild day when the stress is on the rise and my heart I feel 
just be chaos calls but all you really need is to just breathe third cup of joe just to get me through the day wanna make the most of time but i feel it slip away i wonder if there's something Are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned, our show is taped today, so unfortunately, no opportunity to talk to James. But please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub RMC on all locations. James, welcome to the show, and thank you for such a brilliant book. Thank you much for having me. It's, uh, it was such a pleasure reading, and there's so many, many questions I have, but why breath? Why, what, it seems like such an innocuous thing. Why would you pull this out of the air and write about it? Well, that's a good question, and it's a question I was asking myself several years ago when I first started playing around with this idea. Uh, I had no idea breathing was implicated in, in so many different functions in the body that it could do so much, but I kept hearing these stories from people as I was on different reporting assignments, talking to different people, talking to doctors about how just breathing could have this transformative effect for people who had several chronic maladies, or even people who were fit, who wanted to go up that next rung of potential. And finally, that folder I had by my desk got big enough that I thought this was worthy of a real, real pursuit, journalistic pursuit. And I set into the field and um, really got my mind blown around every corner. 
Well, you were involved in quite an experiment. It was a self-induced one, um, as, as you'll read in the book when you get to it, everybody. Um, can you tell us about that? Because it, it just sounds, it sounded awful. <laughs> awful. Yeah, I've got a little PTSD. I, I have to keep <laughs> yeah, reliving this <laughs> every, every time I talk about it. But uh, I'll go back into that world, that mindset a little bit. So I had, um, I live in San Francisco, so I'm very close to Stanford one of the top research institutions in, in the world, incredible medical library, incredible researchers. So I had been in conversations with Dr. Jayakar Nayak, um, who is the chief of rhinology research at Stanford. He's done an incredible amount of work looking at different functions of the nose, how it's implicated in things like blood pressure and different hormones and heart rate and so many different functions. And so he knew the advantages of nasal breathing, and he knew the problems of mouth breathing, specifically taking in all this unfiltered, unhumidified, unheated air, and all the damage it could do to the body. But no one knew how quickly that damage could come on. We knew what would happen if you were a mouth breather for years and years. It's bad, bad news across the board. But no one knew just how quickly. So I volunteered to do a 21-day study with one other person. Uh, the first half of that study was to plug our noses for, for 10 days and to see what happened. And basically, you know, this it, we weren't trying to do some jackass stunt. You know, 25 to 50% of the population habitually breathes through their mouths. So we were really lulling ourselves into a position that both we and so many other people already knew. Were you a mouth breather? I think I was. Uh, I look at some pictures of myself as a kid, and um, it, I think it especially increased after I got braces because I had, you know, wisdom teeth extracted, other teeth extracted, braces, headgear, the whole thing for years, which was just standard practice mm -hmm. back in the day when I was growing up. Um, and I look at pictures of myself and uh, I, was, I was breathing out of my mouth quite, quite a bit. And I knew that at night I was always breathing out of my mouth. I, I never really snored that bad, but every single night I'd go to bed with this huge glass of water because throughout the night I'd just be drinking water, wake up with a dry mouth, and I thought this was normal. But it definitely is not. Uh, you know, it's 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 an evolutionary thing. The, the 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 bent of how the book sort of starts is what really kind of grabbed me. And and I guess you know, as as history moves, that you know, the top of the food chain, we always feel so arrogant in thinking that we are so much better than the generation before. But you very succinctly spell out in the book how I think the term you used was disevolution has really applied into how we suck in our breath. And I think, you know, it'd be really helpful for the people listening to get a grasp of how evolution has, been, has played a part in how our breathing has changed. Sure. Um, and this was something that was completely new to me. I'd never learned this in any biology class or anthropology class or anything, is the idea that evolution is not this straight line forward of progress. Evolution means change, and animals, different life, can change for better or for worse. In regards to our breathing, we've been changing for the worse. And you can see this by looking at what's happened to the human mouth, especially over the past 400, 500 years. It's not normal for an entire species or for 90% of a species to have crooked teeth. 
Okay. <laughs> There's so many of us have crooked teeth. We just figure, oh, this is totally normal. Go into the wild and look at any other animal and it's going to have perfectly straight teeth. And it turns out our ancestors from 500 years ago on back to the first hominid ancestors, all of them had straight teeth. So if you look at a skull that, and I've looked at hundreds of skulls by this time, you, you look at the skull of like early hunters and gatherers 20,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago, they all have these gorgeous teeth. <laughs> so what, what has happened is because they believe, the researchers believe it's, it's mostly tied to the industrialization of food, not so much vitamins and minerals, even though we're certainly lacking those, but the lack of chewing. So all the food we've been eating for the past several centuries, not, not all of it, the vast majority is very soft. We used to chew for about four hours a day. So when you chew that much, you build up more bone, you build up more muscle, your mouth will grow wider. When you don't, when you stop doing that, look around and, and you'll see the effects of that. Um, and this has been studied for the past 50, 40 years. There's hundreds of papers on it, even a few books. So this really blew me away. Um, first, to learn that crooked teeth aren't normal. And second, to learn the cause of those crooked teeth. It's that our mouths are so small. And if a mouth is that small, there's a good chance it's, we're going to have a harder time getting air in and out of in and out of it. So that's one of the reasons why so many of us snore, have sleep apnea and all this, all this morphological change that's occurred in our faces. When you were looking at the skulls, did you notice, obviously you did notice, um, the structural change of the face and why do you think that our, other than, because it's, it's happened since the beginning of time, you sort of documented in the book since we started standing upright with opposable thumbs. Other than the chewing part, um, what else has impacted the way we breathe? It just can't all be just about the chewing. So, our, you know, just like any other life form, we're constantly changing. But the change that's occurred in the past, the change that was occurring a million years ago, happened on this very long scale. So it did not affect our breathing. We adapted to it just fine. So early Homo habilis ancestors, you know, had this very small brain. And then hundreds of thousands of years later, we have a brain that's 50% larger. So that brain needed a place to grow. So it took it from the front of our faces. And this is all very well documented. But, but again, this, this is normal. Animals in life will, will change at these large scales. What happened in the past 400 years happened so quickly that we have not been able to adapt, which is why our breathing is so seriously affected by this. So, so change, change is good. Change is going to happen no matter what. But I think it's the scale of that change that really matters, especially when you're looking at breathing. Okay, why does it matter that we're not breathing through our nose? We're still getting the air we need. So what, what is mm -hmm. the, the health benefit of breathing through the nose? What does the nose do? So, so many doctors will, will even say this today that breath is breath, air is air. So you can mm -hmm. take it through the mouth, you can take it through the nose, all of that's normal. But it's really not. Um, you, you can look at, again, animals in the wild, and they're not breathing through their mouths all the time. Dogs will do it to, to thermoregulate. Mm -hmm. but, but check out a dog that's going to sleep as long as it's not a bulldog, which, which has been bred to have this extremely flat face, which is very similar to ours, by the way. But, but the nose helps 
filter air. It releases nitric oxide, which helps battle off bacteria, pathogens, and even viruses. When we breathe through the nose, we're getting 20% more oxygen compared with mouth breathing. So that means we can breathe 20% less. That means our heart is going to be working much less, which is one of the reasons why nasal breathing oftentimes will bring down blood pressure. So all of these functions, I mean, I, I could go on and on about different hormones that are released and how the nasal hairs help slow down air so that we can absorb it more easily. But we, we are designed with this incredibly ornate, sophisticated organ for a reason. If you were to take your fist and and this is a little weird, but put it in the middle of your head, that's about how much space the nose and all the sinus passages are taking up. So uh, it's, it's all there for a reason, and, and it's really essential for, for proper health. And you see this with people who chronically, with people who suffer from asthma or anxiety or other respiratory distress, they breathe through their mouth too much. And taking in all that unfiltered air will start affecting the lungs after a while. Is this a direct causal link, mouth breathing and things like asthma? That's been, I, I won't say it's, it's direct and, you know, there is some, some controversy around that, but we do know those populations, asthmatics and people with anxiety, other fear-based disorders will traditionally be breathing through their mouth more, more often. Um, and if you look at something like exercise-induced asthma, the more you're breathing, the more air that comes in the more you're going to be aggravating and causing that inflammation. Um, and you can almost think of the lungs as an external organ because they're exposed to everything in our environment, especially with all the pollutants out in the modern world today. You want to filter that. You want to slow down that air. More air is most often not a good thing. You want to use the air that's within you and use it efficiently. And that's what nasal breathing allows us to do. So more air. So this idea of deep breathing is not necessarily the health kick that some people have been promoting it to be. Deep, deep breathing is great. Just don't breathe. Too, don't deep breathe too often. So so when I say in the book, you know, breathing less is going to have all of these benefits. People say, so I'm supposed to be just be breathing into my chest. No, you you breathe fewer breaths but deeper. So it's that tidal volume, that six liters a minute that, that we really want. So if, if you look at the healthiest people, athletes, even some, some meditators, Buddhist monks, they're taking these extremely slow breaths into their abdomen. And this is one of the reasons why they have such a low resting heart rate. You know, it's really hard to have a low resting heart rate if you're just breathing like that is going to raise your, your heart rate. So they've done studies looking at just using breathing to bring down hypertension, and it has significant and lasting benefits just by changing the ways in which you breathe. Why, why is it that we just breathe? Because I'm just breathing here as you're doing it. And, and you know, breathing into, and I do try, I mean, I know that the benefits of, you know, little babies, their, their abdomen goes up and down and, and they're mm -hmm. doing it right. But um, is it, is it, why do we just stop at the chest? I mean, when you really think about it, if you're doing yoga or, you know, you're with someone who's, who's going through the breathing process, it can take some work to train 
going down into the abdomen. Are we, are we losing contact with our diaphragm? Is that a muscle that needs to be worked and we're not doing it? Or is that an impact of breathing through our mouth? And diaphragmatic movement is so essential. So if you take a deep breath right now through your nose, of course, through, through the nose, to a count of about five or six and just bring it into your belly, that diaphragm is going to sink very low, right? And then as you exhale, the diaphragm is going to go up. Every time the diaphragm descends into your belly, it is going to push blood into the thoracic cavity. And when you exhale, that blood is going to be pushed into the heart. So this diaphragm is working like the secondary heart for us, which is why if you breathe at these slow and low breaths, one of the reasons is your, your blood pressure will most often go, I can lower my blood pressure by 10, 15 points by just breathing this way. And you can sustain this by, by breathing this way. So the diaphragm is one of the most ignored muscle organs in the entire body. Um, one researcher in the 50s said it's in this no man's land between physiology and anatomy. No one's claiming it. Pulmonologists mm. don't want it, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm noticing now that there's so much awareness of this diaphragmatic movement because the, the thing is you can still get air in if you're breathing a bunch of really short and clipped breaths but you're overworking your body. And if you're breathing 25,000 times a day, overworking your body with each breath, your body's going to break down. And we're, we're seeing this across the population. So those deep, long breaths, that's not only does it help you absorb more oxygen and do more with less, but it really helps move the diaphragm. And you're 100% right. If you think about your posture sitting at your desk in the modern world, um, you know, we're sitting around on couches. We're not really in a position where we can engage the diaphragm too often. Yoga reacquaints us with that, which is great, but we need to do it more than a half an hour a day. This diaphragmatic movement should be happening all the time. This may sound like the dumbest comment you've ever heard, but people try and hold in their stomachs, you know, you hold in your stomach to have a flat stomach. Does that impede you deep breathing? Because I'm doing that and I'm thinking, well, that's not so attractive. <laughs> of course it does. And, and think of, uh, you know, corsets or Spanx or other really <laughs> tight-fitting clothes that are just squishing the organs together. Uh, this is not good. Um, and, and I've heard from several doctors, they're really worried about people wearing this stuff. Just the same with, with corsets. We're, we're in really tight belts. We're inhibiting ourselves from our most basic biological function. And if people are doing this to look better, I can, I can really say if your body is at peak health, you're going to look a lot better than constantly sucking in your stomach all the time. So, uh, you know, I, I think to look, look at the long tail of this, the long tail of health, you want to keep looking good for a longer time, you're going to learn how to breathe properly. And that means breathing deeply and really having that diaphragmatic movement. So those of us with the mummy tummies are in fact healthier than the flat tummied mummies. I'm not going to get into <laughs> any of that. Every, I, you know what? It makes me feel good. <laughs> every body is beautiful. Um, I just don't, don't compromise your breathing for something else. Uh, focus on the breathing, number one, and you can work on all that other stuff later. What about the exhale? Is that just the reflex of the inhale, or is there a way to do that properly? 
Well, this researcher in the 50s found that so many people have learned how to inhale properly, (gasps) but they weren't exhaling all the way. So their diaphragms were never really rising up to the level in which they could. Uh, And we had been, he had been told in textbooks and by various other researchers that it is impossible to elicit and to train wider diaphragmatic movement. It is impossible to build this movement, this muscle within our bodies. Total garbage. He went on, and some of the worst breathers in the world are emphysemics, right? Who have lost the ability to move their diaphragm up and down. So they just take hundreds of little breaths right into their chest. And he found that by just extending their diaphragmatic movement, he was working at the top VA hospitals along the East Coast. There are x-rays of this. There's data sheets. There's anything. I even have a video up on my website because it sounds so unbelievable. But just by training these people to take these longer, deeper breaths, he was able to help them recover and to get out of the hospital. And these were people who were left for dead. So it not only applies to emphysemics, but for especially for for athletes, for runners, having this diaphragmatic movement is essential to to performance and health. So the diaphragm comes down on the inhale, pops back on the uphill, Mm -hmm. uphill, exhale. Mm -hmm. And if that muscle is tight, it's quite an up and down movement. Is that right? It's not so much that it's tight. It's that if you're not used to moving it up and down, it works just like any other muscle. If it hasn't been worked out for a while, it's not going to be acclimated and acquainted with this movement. So you have to go slow. And this is something people have asked me a zillion times. They're like, okay, I'm going to work out my diaphragm now because we're Americans and this is how we approach things, right? I'm going to kick that diaphragm's butt. No, you need to do this extremely slow and let your body acclimate to it. And this was so important. This is what Stow found, that researcher in the 50s, and it's what so many other people have found as well. You can't force yourself into these, you know, to be a great breather immediately. It needs to really happen slowly. Just like yoga, you wouldn't, if you'd never done yoga, you wouldn't try to be doing crazy backbends and all these maneuvers, you're going to get hurt. Well, the internal organs of the body are going to work in that same way. That's very interesting. I think we're going to take a quick break here because uh, the next question I have might take us over some time. So let's take a quick break and everyone will be back in a couple of minutes here. Word of life, speak to my weary heart. Strengthen my broken parts, lead me to your open arms. Word of truth, illuminate all these lies. The enemy speaks inside, and freedom I will rise. Cause you call me out.
You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are here with James Nestor. The title of his book is Breath, the New Science of a Lost Art. So greatly titled. James, um, are, we at a, are, we, are we in trouble now if we don't breathe properly? Once a mouth breather, always a mouth breather. Or are we able to actually train ourselves? I think the great thing, one of the many great things about the human body is it can be made to, to, you can train it for the worse or you can actually train it to get better. If we've created these problems in our bodies, that means we can identify them and then use that knowledge to improve them. And that was the point of me setting up the book the way I did. At the beginning, people are like, wow, this is heavy stuff. First couple chapters are like, these are all the problems that I didn't know existed. And I have a feeling many readers didn't know existed. No. But the vast, vast majority of the book is then, okay, here's the problem. We've identified it. It's anatomical. Sometimes it's psychological. It's cultural. What can we do about this? Um, because most of the time we think that however we've developed by the time we're adults, whatever we have in our body is, is what we're stuck with our whole life. And, and the medical community believed this was true, especially in regards to bone mass and lung size, diaphragm, you know, on, on and on and on, autonomic nervous system. But what I've learned by, by working with these people over years is that we can absolutely affect our bodies in positive ways and improve our breathing. And that's why I did a few of these tests to just see, I wanted to be able to write about this stuff from the inside to explain what the process felt like. And also I was just curious. I was not a good breather when I started this. I'm not going to say I'm a great breather now, but I'm getting better for, for sure. I've got a long way to go. So just the idea that the people with a small mouth, just like me, who have had all these problems, who have chronic sinusitis, who have asthma, other respiratory problems, we can use breathing to help blunt the symptoms of these problems and in some extraordinary cases to actually uh, quote unquote cure them where, where people do not feel the symptoms of things that have plagued them for decades. And these are huge claims and, and I don't take them lightly, but the science and the data firmly supports this. And there's, there's hundreds of case studies showing this. So I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I, I was just, so in that Stanford experiment, uh, I mentioned all the bad things that happened, but the good part about the experiment is it was set up for 10 days of mouth breathing, followed by 10 days of nasal breathing and other breathing practices. So we, we moved that silicone up from up in our nose, removed it, and I was taping my mouth shut, teeny piece of tape at night and was trying to tape it during the day and just focusing on breathing through my nose. My blood pressure dropped and in the first day, about 15, 20 points. Um, that snoring, which had plagued me um, during mouth breathing, I went from not snoring to snoring about four hours a night instantly within a few days. And the other subject in the experiment had the exact same reaction. First night, my snoring went way down many hundreds of a, of a percent. And by the third or fourth night, I wasn't snoring at all. I haven't snored since. Just by changing the pathway through which we breathe air. 
And I've heard from several other people who have done the same thing. And they've gotten rid of uh, mild or moderate snoring. And they've also helped get rid of sleep apnea. And Stanford is now instigating a new study of hundreds of people looking at just closing the mouth at night and how that affects sleep apnea. So the, this stuff is, and, and the fact that so many people don't know this <laughs> was, was a little strange. And also people say, oh, that sounds a little sketchy. I don't know about that. Well, Stanford's studying it and Dr. Mark Berhenny has been studying it for, for decades and other researchers have been studying it. And it, it's such a simple thing. No one can really make any money on this. So I think that's one of the reasons too many people haven't heard about it. But just closing the mouth at night means a third of your life, you're going to be getting more oxygen, you're going to be filtering your air, and you're going to be toning your airways in the back of your mouth. Because when we nasal breathe, if you take a big breath in and then out through your nose, you might feel at the back of your throat that negative and positive pressure pushing those tissues back, which is exactly what happens when we nasal breathe. If you breathe through your mouth now, those tissues come forward. So, so you can actually help train your airways by just switching the, the way in which you breathe. Uh, Jay, I'm losing my focus trying to breathe and then thinking of what I want to talk Sorry, that was a heavy, heavy load. I just, I just I downloaded like there. I'll break up my talking <laughs> yeah. points next time. I'm like, oh my God, what was I going to ask? Um, okay, okay, so I'll breathe. If you sleep on your back, like does the position that you sleep in, I would think if you slept on your back, your mouth might drop. But um, you can answer that one. That's quickie. Um, if, we, if we sleep with our mouth shut, so we tape our mouth shut, are we going to necessarily breathe into the abdomen? Like when we're unconscious asleep, do you know if our body will do it right? You're going to be breathing. I, I don't know if everyone's body is going to be doing it right because you're breathing unconsciously. But when you are nasal breathing, you are traditionally breathing deeper. That's just, that's just how it works. And when we're, what's, what's ironic is when we sleep, if we don't have snoring and sleep apnea, we start breathing more normally the, the way that we were designed to. If you watch someone sleeping, it's these very slow and fluid breaths, you know, and they're, they're often deeper. It's, it's, I watch my dog sleep, you know, and, and it's these extremely slow breaths. And that's how we should be, we should be breathing, at least is what the science says, during the day much more often. So as far as back sleeping is concerned, if you have like that strong jaw and don't suffer from snoring and sleep apnea or any of that, from what I've seen, from what I've found, back sleeping is just fine if it works for mm -hmm. you. But it's for these people who have mild or moderate, even severe snoring and sleep apnea that if you imagine yourself on your back, so the, these two things are different. Snoring is caused by the soft tissues at the back of the throat. <sighs> you know, collapsing inward. And sleep apnea is caused by the tongue falling back into the throat until, until you choke. And so some people can hold their breath with their tongue lodged in their throats for 30 seconds a minute at a time. And then they go. <coughs> so if you've ever heard someone with sleep apnea, it sounds really scary because it, it is. And it's so injurious to, to the body on so many levels. So for these people, um, you know, ancients uh, prescribed for people to, to sleep on their side. If you look at a picture of the Buddha sleeping, if anyone wants to look this up online, uh, there's a very good chance he's sleeping on his side 
And um, the Han Dynasty in China, they were prescribing this as well. A cardiologist in the, 70 years ago was taping balls to the back of his, his patients so they couldn't sleep on their backs because side sleeping was so much better, he, he found. So uh, for people who do have respiratory problems, and especially they've found this with patients with COVID now, they used to lie them on their backs. They're not doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. They're putting them on their sides or on their stomachs. And they're finding, oh my God, this makes such a huge difference. Well, of course it does. When you, mm -hmm. when you take a big breath in, that inhale is going to fill up more in your back than, than your chest. So if you're on your back, your lungs aren't going to be able to expel all that gunk. So this is stuff we've known for thousands of years. Um, and it's interesting to see it all come around right now. Yet, okay, so I've had four kids and mm -hmm. it's been lie them on the back, lie them on the side, lie them on, literally, through the span of, of the four of them, I was, you know, the research said back, side, tummy. So mm -hmm. it was an interesting piece in the book is when, when you, you made the comment or you, you wrote that um, people in cultures, in some cultures, think of breathing through the mouth, uh, mouth as poison air mm -hmm. and that they teach their children how to breathe through their mouth is this gone from natural now to us? Do we have to teach our kids how to breathe through their mouth or their nose? Yeah, and just I just want to make something really clear. I'm not a breathing therapist. I'm not a Oh, doctor. that's fine. I, I'm, I'm a journalist, and it's infant sleeping is a whole different thing. Um, and I'm having um, a professor of pediatrics from the Harvard Medical School on to answer questions about infant sleeping because he is qualified to do this. And this is one of the questions, side mm -hmm. sleeping, back sleeping. Um, and this guy's, you know, leader in the field. So I want to leave this advice to the professionals and I can speak to my experience and my, and what I've collected as far as research is, is considered. But I can say that, that cultures, at least, um, as far as one anthropologist and painter had noticed when he went to all of the, went to 50 Native American tribes starting in the 1830s and then went to South America and saw that they considered breathing an absolute medicine. And, and to do it improperly, they said, was going to sag the face, it was going to make you ugly, it was also going to make you sick. And, and we know that people who habitually mouth breathe their faces will form differently. It's called adenoid face. So it's interesting that this guy was around, you know, 150 years ago finding this stuff. And it seems like a lot of it is, is becoming more supported the more we look into it. Well, it's funny something that we take so naturally or that we take for granted, that's something that we have to do so many times a day. We know that it is without it, our breath uh, will die, that we just take it for granted. It's, it's amazing to me that your book is the first one to really focus on the health benefits of proper breath. So I, I have a selfish question, um, and I'll, I'll pair that around the mouth breathing for you. But you have a part in the book about, and you said, I hate running, and so do I. Mm -hmm. um, but I do it because it's quick -er and easy, and right now our gyms are closed. So I've started a running program, but it, it's not my preferred way of running. But I tried to breathe through my nose, as you said, and I thought I was suffocating because I know I breathe through my mouth. I just don't feel like I'm getting enough air. So as you were going, did you find you enjoyed running more or you found a profound difference or you're still in the process of training through your nose to, when you run? 
And this is so common and I, I'm getting, you know, dozens and dozens of emails about this. I'm trying to breathe through my nose, but I can't, what am I supposed to do? Oh, it's you know, hard. I'm like, and I'm wondering like, what have I gotten myself into? So, <laughs> so what, what, what I do know about this is the nose is an organ. It's a use it or lose it organ. The less you use it, the less you're going to be able to, to use it. And, and so uh, this is what uh, Ann Kearney, uh, speech language pathologist, specialist down at Stanford had discovered where she found people who had had laryngectomies, who had a, a hole drilled in their throats and found between two months and two years, their noses completely obstructed. And she, she was a mouth breather. And she thought, this is what's happening to our population right now. The less we breathe through our nose, the, the nose is just feels like it's not needed. So it closes up. So what I've found is so many Absolutely, some people need surgical interventions, and I'm not one to diagnose that at all. But I will say so many people do not. What they do need is to start breathing through their nose and making it a habit. And where people get frustrated is they go out and they say, I'm going to jog today. I'm going to breathe through my nose. Uh, you know what? Didn't work. Didn't get enough air in. I'm not doing that again. This takes time to develop this skill. But if you look at the work by Dr. John Duyar or uh, Phil Maffetone, these are two trainers of Olympians, triathletes, uh, basketball teams who have been busy at this stuff since at least the 80s. They've found once you train yourself to habitual nasal breathing, the benefits are extraordinary. Your endurance is going to go up. Your performance is going to go up. Your recovery is going to go up. So one bit of advice I heard from a breathing therapist is he said, never run harder than you can breathe correctly. So if you're not breathing correctly at your certain pace, you need to slow down and acclimate yourself very slowly. And again, as Westerners, this drives people crazy. Mm -hmm. if, but this is an investment that you can keep with you. You're, like, you're going to use your nose the rest of your life. So, so if you spend some time and focus on this, um, you know, can have big benefits. One, one thing I did do because I started doing this as well. I was like, there's no way I'm getting enough oxygen. So I went to a gym. This is when gyms were open and I went to a stationary bike and I, I said, I want to see how slowly I can breathe and still get enough oxygen. And I had, I was hooked up to a pulse oximeter, which is measuring the amount of oxygen in my bloodstream. And I found I was down to breathing about five times a minute, which is about you know, a fifth of what I would be breathing normally through the nose and my oxygen did not move. So that feeling, that suffocation you feeling is not triggered by lack of oxygen. It's triggered by an increase of CO2, of carbon dioxide. So if people are really curious, they can get on their Pelotons, you know, get a pulse oximeter, they're 20 bucks and watch what happens to your oxygen when you breathe slower. And I think you will be amazed that your oxygen isn't the thing that's moving. It's that CO2 that's going up. That I, I want to get to the CO2 in, in one second. <laughs> um, I, I know that's going to be a conversation, but is there a place for our mouth in breathing at all? Oh, I, I talked to Patrick McEwen, who is, I would consider him one of the leading authorities in, in breath retraining for asthmatics, athletes, and all that. And he's, you know, I said, I, I see some basketball players. I see Steph Curry slam dunking, opening his mouth to breathe. And he said, when, when you're in these moments, mouth breathing, when you're in these moments of competition, 
if you're running from someone, if, you know, these moments of emergency, of course, mouth breathing, a few breaths is, is completely fine. The whole point is about habitual breathing. So right now during this conversation we've been having last 40 minutes, I've been breathing, I've been taking some breaths through my mouth because I'm talking and I, and I keep talking, I keep talking quickly. But the other 24,000 breaths I'm going to be taking today, I'm going to really focus on my nose. So we have a mouth for a reason. It's this emergency hatch if anything happens to the nose, but we, it shouldn't become habitual of always breathing through the mouth. So we're not getting it. The mouth allows us to take more air than the nose when we're exhausted? Yes, it allows okay. us to take, to take more air. <gasps> I can breathe in so much quicker than... <gasps> But the, the point is, you don't need that much air. Three quarters of that air is coming back out of us anyway. So by taking nasal breaths is so much more efficient that we're able to use the oxygen much more efficiently in each of those breaths. When you're mouth breathing like this, you're not necessarily absorbing any more oxygen. And in some cases, you're offloading so much CO2 that you're constricting circulation throughout your body. So you're breathing more to get less. And this is such a contrarian concept. It took me months of, of working with these researchers to figure this out. But we've known about this for 100 years. It's just so few people have been talking about it. Now, before I get on to CO2, are you enjoying running anymore? I hate running. Okay, I hate so it. Darn it. That's I, not I walk, what I wanted to I'm hear. I'm a water guy. <laughs> I'm a water guy. I live in San Francisco. I'm close to the coast. And so especially in these weird times to go out into the ocean and swim around and surf is that's that's where I find that that solace okay darn um okay so co2 I want to talk about this before we get to the end of the show because everybody thinks carbon dioxide is completely a waste product um but that's not so so enlighten us into as to what you found that co2 its role in the body is yeah, so you can pick up the paper almost any day and watch as CO2 levels around the planet are increasing and how that's implicated in, in climate change, uh, how, it's, how it's making the oceans more acidic. It's, it's bad news. And so CO2's gotten this really bad rap. But we have, I, I've read this report that said 100 times more CO2 in our bodies than oxygen. <laughs> so we are CO2 creatures and we have to have a proper balance of CO2 with oxygen or things aren't going to be able to function properly. It's really this, this yin and yang relationship between oxygen and CO2. So what happens when we breathe too much, just if you were to go, <sighs> do that for, for 20 seconds, you're going to feel some lightness in your head. You're going to feel your fingers. Uh, maybe we'll get a little cold or numb if you keep breathing this way. What's happening is we're offloading too much CO2. And without that CO2, we are inhibiting circulation because CO2 is this amazing vasodilator. And it's used to attract oxygen to certain areas. So the reason why if you're working out, if you're working out your right arm and lifting up a weight and putting it you know, down again, that area is going to be needing much more oxygen than other areas of the body. So that CO2 is a trigger for oxygen in our bloodstream to go out there and, and offload. So it's like this, this catalyst that allows oxygen to get where it needs to. And so, so few people 
understand this. And I certainly didn't understand it because when they breathe that way, even in vigorous pranayamas and yoga class, they're like, oh, I'm lightheaded because I have so much oxygen in my body. No, the, the opposite is happening. Your, your circulation is being uh, stunted in those areas. And we know that, that every 2% um, that, that each milligram of mercury goes down in your pH is, is going to decrease your circulation to, to certain areas. And in the brain, that circulation can, can be decreased, you know, up to, up to 30% if you're really hyperventilating, 30 or 40%, which is incredible. So I read that part in the book and I actually had to go through the mechanisms of hyperventilating and the paper bag, but it was such an aha moment when I finally got the understanding of it. And it's, it's, there's so many brilliant pieces of the book. I, I was reading it and I'm, my son was with me and I'm like, Shane, did you know this? Shane, did you know, do you know that the inside of your nose, the cells are like the same as your sex? He was, he was, he was like, okay, mom, I'll read the book. And I was, I was, it was amazing. I, you know, I, everyone, I truly hope um, you read this book and it is not dry. It is not a dry book. It's read, it's written with, with a comedic arc and it's, it's really a great, great book. To, to read, great summer read. Um, James, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed the book. I really enjoyed our conversation and honestly, so enlightening. It's my new passion now. I've already done a talk on it. Um, so I, I thank you so much for it on a personal note. And everybody, I'm, I'm sure you'll just love it when you get it. Thank you very much for having me. This was fun. It was fun. And everybody, um, do pick up the book. You can get it, James, on Amazon, I'm sure, is, is probably all, what... All, wherever books are sold, I guess, uh, at this time, which basically means Amazon. Yeah, Amazon, this, yeah. This modern day. Oh, to have stock in Amazon. Um, so uh, the book is called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor. James, thank you for being on the show. And everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.